This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. And joining me today on this episode of History 605 is Philip Burnham. Philip Burnham has a Ph.D. in American Studies. He grew up in Illinois and taught at uh, Rosebud Indian Reservation at Santa Gleska University for several years and was a correspondent at Indian Country Today. He's also lived and worked uh, around the world in a lot of very interesting places, London, Paris, uh, Senegal, and Philip has published in American Heritage, The Washington Post, Military History Quarterly. It's a fine uh, magazine, and he's published books on uh, Native American issues, one entitled Indian Country, God's Country, Native Americans and the National Parks. And he also has a, a work on the song of Dewey Beard, the last survivor of the Little Bighorn. Uh, Philip is retired now from George Mason University and lives in Albuquerque. Uh, welcome, Philip, to History 605. Thank you, Ben. Some of our listeners may have heard of the Lakota warrior Yellowknife, and the first thing that intrigued me about the article that you wrote was that uh, the, the subject of your article, We Consider Ourselves Human Beings, the Education of Clarence Three Stars, Clarence Three Stars is Yellowknife's son, uh, and I just thought that the cultural transition that that Clarence undergoes in his lifetime is really quite remarkable. Um, what drew you to uh, Clarence Three Stars? How did you kind of find out about this man, and what made him interesting and compelling subject for you to do your research and writing on? Well, originally, I wanted to gather the, the life stories of a number of Native people, male and female, who had um, experienced the age of assimilation, roughly speaking, from the years of about 1880 to about 1930 before the Indian Reorganization Act, mm -hmm. an age when uh, um, assimilation was through schools and through churches and through the military was something that was uh, not only encouraged, but in, in many ways required by the federal government. And uh, in I started, uh, I was planning a book, uh, and I was going to devote a chapter to each individual who I found who in some way, you know, had something to do with, um, with the assimilative process. I came across Clarence Three Stars' name in uh, Luther Standing Bear's My People to Sue. Okay which some of your listeners may be familiar with. It's mm -hmm. a great account of, of uh, a Lakota man who lived during this period um, and wrote a lot about it. But I wanted to kind of get beyond uh, people like Luther Standing Bear, who were kind of well-known, and, and look at some of the people who, whose names have been totally kind of lost to history. And in Starting my investigation into Clarence Three Stars, I realized that he had done so many interesting things and had so many interesting experiences that I really didn't need to find seven or eight or ten other people. I could write a whole book mm. about his life, a biography, mm -hmm. and it would uh, really do what I had originally set out to do. So the genesis really came by the luck, I think, of or, uh, the good fortune of having read Luther Standing Bear. And Clarence Three Stars is mentioned almost in passing in the book, but 
the more I found out about Clarence, uh, the more convinced I became that uh, not only an article, uh, he was worthy not only of an article, but, uh, but an entire book. And sure enough, um, um, since that time, which is about seven years ago, that's certainly proven to be the case. So track with us a little bit on the, what's Clarence's story? He, he um, starts out life on what is becoming a reservation, goes east for school, and then goes back to Pine Ridge. And then the change over time, just in his lifetime, is rather remarkable, and it's a daunting environment to navigate for any human being, um, and he does fairly well. But for I'm, any human being, certainly. And in the case of Clarence, he was born in 1864. He was 14 or 15 years old when Richard Henry Pratt came through Rosebud and Pine Ridge Reservations recruiting uh, Indian children for his new school, Carlisle Indian Industrial School in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Uh, at the time, uh, as far as I can discern, uh, Clarence, who was whose name, Lakota name, and translated into English was Pax the Dog. Mm -hmm. He had an uncle named Three Stars uh, with whom he lived, uh, spoke no English. And Clarence uh, took the train, the steamer and the train ride out to Carlisle when he was uh, 14 or 15, not knowing a word of English, and spent five years at Carlisle, was the first it was in the first entering class of Indian students, most of whom that first year were from uh, were from Pine Ridge and Rosebud. Okay. He he was there for five years. He uh, um, did several of the outings or the kind of usual what were often kind of summer work experiences that Carlisle students were expected to undertake to improve their English and learn something about the English speaking world outside of school. He worked for six months at John Wanamaker's uh, Emporium in Philadelphia, which at the time was arguably the, the greatest commercial department store um, um, in the country, uh, or at least one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ended up walking away from the store when he was not uh, satisfied with the job, didn't really like um, the experience of living in a big city and uh, went back to Pine Ridge, as you say, and eventually, after teaching at Pine Ridge Boarding School, became a day school teacher uh, for many years um, in the non-residential schools of Pine Ridge that served uh, Lakota children and uh, taught not only in English, which was really what they were, what teachers were supposed to be teaching him, but also taught in Lakota, which was strictly speaking against Indian Bureau policy. Mm -hmm. But he did it because he knew that his students could use it. He'd been through the experience himself of learning, uh, going off to learn, uh, um, to get a, a, an education different than the education he had as a young boy but speaking a second language. And he tried to put that to use by using his Lakota and English in tandem mm -hmm. while he was teaching at the day schools. And then his life kind of goes on from there. And there's, there's certainly more to talk about in that vein, too. Well, and, and what kind of, I guess when I think of that in a, in a civic way, what type of role would he play as a teacher at a school within the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation? Is there what type of government pre preceding the Indian Reservation Act or 
Indian Reorganization Act that comes along in the 1930s. So prior to all that, how did the tribe and the Bureau of Indian Affairs govern Pine Ridge Indian Reservation? And did he feel some kind of, you know, um, was he disempowered by the way this was being done? Did he feel like he had to kind of break out? I mean, clearly he stayed there, so there, there's some motivation there for him to, to right. work and live he in his own stay. hometown. And he stayed, unlike um, Luther Standing Bear, who eventually left and went on to to work in films in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, Clarence decided to stay on the reservation, and he later became a politician and a lawyer and uh, even tribal president. Mm. The To get to your question, the reservation was... Before the Indian Reorganization Act in the early 30s, uh, there was a council of elders, uh, Lakota elders, who held a certain amount of political power, but they were basically under the thumb of the Indian Bureau. And the um, uh, the uh, head of the Bureau of Indian Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Interior Secretary, and basically they were subject to the laws that were passed um, in Washington. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, this was something that uh, Three Stars himself was regarded by a number of the agents, or later called superintendents at Pine Ridge, as a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. He was described as such, as his father Yellowknife was, in correspondence. And uh, it was not particularly a, um, a designation that he liked, though I, I I sense that he was rather proud of it over time because there were a number of things that he found wanting mm-hmm. in the way that uh, the uh, reservation was administered. Right. Uh, it's for people who don't really um, uh, know much about reservations. It's extraordinary when you go back. When I went back through all the agents' correspondence, their agents' reports that were done every year on an annual basis. Mm-hmm describing what uh, Indian people had to do in order to make a living during this period after they were put on the reservation and before the uh, Indian Reorganization Act, and still in many ways is true in terms of the amount of power that the Interior Department has on reservations like Pine Ridge. But, you know, to to kill a, a cow in order to have a feast, you had to get a permit to cut wood uh, to you had to get a permit. You had to, everything uh, during this assimilationist period was particularly um, uh, um, very strongly regulated by uh, the agent who was the local representative of Washington. And uh, the yoke that this put on Indian people uh, was something that Three Stars himself grew to resent a great deal and led him to become involved not only in teaching students, but involved in uh, po- politics as well. Right. Well, speaking of teaching students, how would he teach about these issues to his students? Did you, in your research, did you come across lessons or um, lectures or notes of anything like that, where how he would present this to them? I don't have any evidence that he taught his students that the Indian Bureau was was excessively um, governing their lives. Uh, But, I mean, for instance, to give you an example, he had a 
uh, part of his syllabus when he was teaching in in the day schools was to imagine uh, 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 he created an imaginary government and had it staffed by by different students. Uh, um, somebody was treasurer. Somebody was uh, a police officer. It was like a municipal government mm-hmm. that that they were expected to staff and um, and produce, I think, some kinds of laws and that they were expected to follow. It was all written up in a very patriotic way, I should I should add. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't I guess I wouldn't say outright that that he fomented in his in his students any kind of of outright disrespect for the Indian Bureau. I think he understood that they had to abide by certain regulations in order to get by. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to make a living, in order to make use of uh, English language, which they were learning. Mm-hmm. But he did teach them, he gave them a strong sense of bilingualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if nothing else, he taught them and he reminded them, uh, in case anybody needed reminding, that there were always at least two ways to say anything, given that you had two languages in the classroom, which was very unusual for an Indian Bureau teacher around the turn of the century. Okay. So he was, would you call him someone who was kind of um, fighting to retain the language despite the interior department trying to take that away? Definitely. Yeah. He, he certainly did so. And he, he worked um, for a while. He was uh, hired to translate some of the uh, original Lakota writings of George Sword, who was the police captain on Pine Ridge for a long time, but was an extremely knowledgeable man about traditional Lakota ways, and who helped many anthropologists with his writing down in Lakota of traditional Lakota ways. And for a while, uh, Three Stars was hired by James Walker, a well-known physician around the turn of the century who helped fight tuberculosis on Pine Ridge and was very successful at it for a number of years. He helped Walker for a while anyway, translate uh, some of Sword's work um, from Lakota into English. So I guess he, yes, he was interested in preserving the language. He was, he fought to preserve many uh, of the, um, he fought to preserve the power of the local political council. Mm-hmm. He died only a couple of years before in the Indian Reorganization Act, so he didn't see what happened at that point, though mm-hmm. I think he would have been disappointed in many ways. And he also got involved in political issues such as World War I. Oh, he, was opposed to, he was opposed to the drafting of, of unallotted uh, Indian men. Uh, in other words, young men who had not been given an allotment and had not uh, gone through the process of showing that they wanted to become a full-fledged uh, United States citizen, he right. believed that they should not be subject to the draft, which I should add was not a very popular opinion in Bennett County, where he lived at the time, okay. um, and in all of Pine Ridge and in all of the country. Right. Uh, anybody who who protested in any way against the war was subject to prosecution through the Sedition Act, and many right. people ended up going to jail for it. He did not, yes. but he was called a traitor by a number of people, um, also, uh, some of them non-Indian and some of them Indian, who right. felt that 
the cause of World War One was uh, was a perfectly worthy one. Right. Well, it strikes me. I guess he's being intellectually honest. He's saying if we can't if we can't vote, if we can't own land outside the reservation or within the reservation, or we're not seen as um, an individual instead of a member of a tribe, uh, then this isn't our war. I guess is, would that be exactly. his argument? That was his argument. He never, actually, I've never seen any correspondence of his saying that he was opposed to the war per se. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but as you as you put it, um, if the, if uh, would be doughboys were not uh, um, subject to the same rights and privileges of American citizens. Then it, then it was not their war to fight. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the stance that he took. His son, Paul, had seven children in total. Um, mm -hmm. His son, Paul, was eventually drafted and did serve and went overseas. Um, but uh, he was capable of... One of the interesting things, fascinating things about Three Stars is how he really spanned the spectrum. People, people oftentimes divide uh, um, reservation Indians, especially during this period, into either being progressives or traditional. And in some ways, he had strong elements of both. Mm. And that was true not only of, of three stars, but of many, many um, Indian men and women on reservations across the country during this assimilation period. Mm -hmm. What was his view later in life of the school that he went to, the Carlisle School? Did he? He had mixed emotions. He actually went in 1899, uh, which was about 15 years after he left the school. He got up on stage at a uh, commencement uh, um, gathering, mm -hmm. a celebration in the gym, and gave a short speech. Uh, explaining uh, briefly detailing how much he liked uh, Carlisle and how much he profited from it. And uh, so he had a, he felt pride about having gone to Carlisle as many Carlisle students did. At the same time, I've run across references in the agent's correspondence where he talked about uh, the fact that he was at times sorry that he'd even, that he'd even gone away to school. Mm -hmm. uh, he was um, ambivalent about his boarding school experience, as many uh, Indian people, boys and girls, were. He was uh, um, he he was subjected to some humiliation when he was at Carlisle. The discipline was rigorous, mm -hmm. although he had a fairly quite a close relationship with Pratt, who was the superintendent of the school for most of its existence. Uh, but at the same time, he had difficulties at school and, and eventually left his job at Wanamaker's and left the school altogether. He, he learned how to speak and read and write English, which led him into other places that he could not have gone uh, in his adult life. To give you just one example, he became a lawyer through a correspondence school in Washington. Mm-hmm called the Columbia Correspondence School, it taught day schools by day and studied law at night and uh, became, in about 1912, 1913, became the first state's attorney of Bennett County, which for an Indian person was uh, extremely 
unusual. I mean, it was written up in the newspapers. It was so sure. unusual to have an Indian lawyer, much less an Indian lawyer who, uh, you know, had um, um, been elected to uh, to office. And he um, uh, was a, a judge in Bennett County for a couple of years and put his learning in the law to work because he was also one of the early advocates for getting some kind of compensation for the Black Hills, which the Lakota mm-hmm. had given up in 1877, at least by the act that was passed in 1877 through through a process that was not very honest mm-hmm. um, in terms of the treaty signing. But he became one of the early advocates and, and uh, went to Washington and uh, attempted to uh, with others start the ball rolling in terms of seeing something in return hmm. for the land that they that they gave up then. So the federal suit that culminates in the 1980 Supreme Court case is that kicked off with his efforts here? Is it or is that Well, he's one of the early leaders. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that process goes on for a long time and uh it was settled, you know, in 1980 and but the uh, it was it took decades yeah. for the tribe to be able to to try it in the court of claims. The Interior Department didn't even consider it a serious suit mm-hmm. until the early 20th century. But he was in he was in Washington arguing uh, for something for the Black Hills um, as early as 1897 and possibly before. And I come across a lot of correspondence in the early 20th century, too. It shows that he was still, up until about 1920, he was still one of the leaders in getting uh, um, some kind of redress for the hills. So, and, uh, but he kind of, he dies about a decade later. I don't, uh, after about 1920, he's not one of the major players in, yeah. in the suit. So would he? How would you think that he would think of the decision of the Supreme Court in 1980? It, 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 something you said makes me think that he was—he would have been willing to have take, taken the purchase price. Well, he might well have, because mm-hmm. the idea—that's uh, a difficult thing to say right. because it's hard to read what's possible and what's not. He—he right. um, he was certainly assimilated enough into. Uh, mainstream American culture, I think, to understand the value and the power of a dollar. I mean, he mm-hmm. worked for John Wanamaker for six months. He also ran a, a dry goods store for uh, many years um, in the Corn Creek Allen area in in uh, Bennett County. So okay. he was a merchant uh, in kind of a side career. He owned his own ranch. He he traded land after he was allotted in 19, I think it was about 1912. He was, Bennett County allowed him to expand a little in terms of being, uh, in in terms of uh, how he could earn a living. So he was aware of the power of a dollar. He Mm -hmm. He might have been willing to accept monetary compensation, which I think was probably what was in the minds of most Lakotas, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. Mm-hmm. But uh, as time went on, and as your listeners may well be aware, and they probably are, the 
the um, Lakota tribes have united tribes have refused to take any of the monetary compensation. Right. How he would feel about that now if he were alive, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I think there was a time when if the if the money would have been uh, um, substantial, that um, people on on the uh, reservations might have been very tempted to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an open question. Sure. Another thing that may very well be an open question, it strikes me that there's between the culture his father grows up in and the culture that he grows up in and passes away in, it, remarkably different. I wonder, um, is there any way for him to know what his father thought of him, what his father would have thought of his son's circumstances and how his son proceeded through life? I think in the sense that uh, he might have had reflected knowledge about his father, yes. Mm-hmm. His father died when he, was, when, he, when he was five. Okay. And uh, his uncle, Three Stars, uh, with whom he lived um, for, well, until he went away to uh, Carlisle, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that that was probably his father's brother, the way that Lakota um, uh, families work. He was probably adopted by his father's brother, and uh, I would guess that he was his he was raised much the way that Luther Standing Bear was raised in a traditional Lakota way before he was 14, mm-hmm. and would have had a, a, a sense of of Lakota boyhood, um, somewhat similar to what his father would have known. Although, of course, 18, he was born in 1864, so the uh, um, late 1860s, early 1870s were different even for uh, people living in the Pine Ridge Rosebud areas and in northern Nebraska would have been different than they would have been, you know, even a generation before. Still, I think he probably had a good taste of it. Certainly Lakota uh, religion. Uh, he would have, uh, I think, learned a lot of the things that a Lakota boy learns in terms of riding a horse and um, and uh, reading a trail and and doing any variety of things, the games that they typically played in mm-hmm. order to kind of harden themselves against the elements. I think he would have had a good sense of his father's um, uh, his fa- the, the amb- ambiance that his father grew up in. But, as you say, uh, again, uh, he entered into a whole new world um, and uh, decided to, even whatever ambivalence he felt about boarding school, sent a couple of his children to boarding schools, mm-hmm. which suggests that he found that they were, they offered something that uh, traditional Lakota ways couldn't offer, at, at least in the world he was living in. Mm-hmm. And I guess my last question is, what we talk about the kind of the poorly thought through policy of the United States government in relation to um, indigenous peoples along the way from 1607 until, I don't know, some might argue today. Um, what would Clarence Three Stars, if he could have designed the policy in 1900, uh, how how might he have, have shaped it? Well, I think he would have allowed, um, I, I think he would have given much greater credence to Native cultures in terms of the way Indian children were educated, children and young mm-hmm. people. 
uh, in spite of the fact that he came to become, he became fluent in English and, and wrote it quite well and spoke it very well and became a translator and worked for many Washington uh, um, groups that came out, uh, junkets that came out for various reasons to the reservation. He acted as a translator. And so he was a go-between, very much between the two cultures. Mm-hmm. But he was, uh, he would have called, I think, for greater cultural sensitivity um, and even more than sensitivity, respect mm-hmm. uh, for uh, the Native kids that uh, were being uh, assimilated and maybe uh, a better word would be um, making bicultural um, people rather than assimilated ones. Oh, I think yeah. he would have been more respectful of traditional political beliefs. Uh, he was a supporter of the old tribal council all the way through the 20s when it was a um, uh, it was still in dispute what was going to happen with it. And this was, mm-hmm. and I think he would have been disappointed with the Indian Reorganization Act, which Pine Ridge, the Oglala at Pine Ridge did accept eventually, as many tribes did, because mm-hmm. it put too much power in the hands of the Secretary of Interior and and the head of the, uh, of the BIA. Uh, I think he would have, um, uh, he would have, he opposed, he finally uh, opposed allotment uh, mm-hmm. in his kind of, well, in his early adult life, he first approved it, but uh, later came to regret that approval, I think, mm-hmm. and came to oppose it because it cut up the Indian land base in a way right. that he recognized too late was um, was um, um, not uh, a credit to which made life very difficult economically for people living on the reservation. Mm-hmm. I think he would have been opposed to a number of things like that at the same time that he recognized that being bicultural had advantages and uh, learning something like the law and reading Blackstone uh, <laughs> would would help. Right would help might help with things like getting something in return for uh, for the black hills and for you know any other case that might come up right well philip this has been a, a wonderful conversation ranging from yellow knife to blackstone i don't know that there's any <laughs> other mm-hmm. form where that might occur but um yeah your uh, your article again we which was entitled we consider ourselves human beings the education of clarence three stars uh, appeared in the South Dakota History Journal, volume 50, number two, last summer, summer of 2020. Um, it's a if wonderful I, if article. If I could add just one quick thing sure. then. Sure. If anybody, uh, I'm always looking for more information about Clarence Three Stars. Clarence Three Stars Sr., that is. He had a son named Clarence too. But mm-hmm. if anybody has a fo- photos or letters or anything like that, you can always find me on www.philburnham.com. Okay. I'm always receptive to anything like that. Yeah, well, we look forward to what may come of the future work with him, and it sounds like uh, Luther Standing Bear may have a a uh, star in the universe next to him as we watch this uh, might, cultural shift. Might well, or, or three stars. Yeah, three. <laughs> Very good, sir. We'll, we'll end with that, and uh, thanks for joining us here on History 605. Thank you, Ben. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation. 
and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history. History.